If you would turn in your copy of the scriptures, please, to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. We spent some time in the Psalms uh, over the summer as we looked at Psalms of Lament. This is not a psalm of lament, so this will not be, a, uh, hopefully, a lamentable sermon. This will be an opportunity for us to look at God's word for different types of application from a different type of psalm, which I'll explain a little bit more in a minute. Psalm 78, and if you're physically able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word? Read along silently as I read aloud Psalm 78, verses 1 through 11. And this is what God's word says. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a, a stubborn and rebellious generation, A generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you. Uh, excited to hear from you, looking forward to what you have in store for us, wanting to be changed, wanting to be impacted by your word, wanting to be personally uh, convicted, wanting your loving kindness to lead us to repentance, Lord, in whatever area you see fit. So Lord, we pray that you would use your word to bring glory to yourself and to bring growth and change and Christ-likeness to us, your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we just read a portion, just a portion of Psalm 78. Now, if your Bible is like mine, uh, you'll see that just prior to verse 1, the psalm is described as a masculine of Asaph. Raise your hand if you have something in your Bible right prior to 78 verse 1 that says that it's a masculine of Asaph. Raise your hand. Okay, good. So I'm not alone. It's a masculine of Asaph, introducing Asaph, a fairly unique individual, in that he's referred to constantly throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament, but he's fairly obscure in that he's never quoted apart from the Psalms. There's, he's always listed in a roster, or the sons of Asaph were here, or Asaph is listed as people who are present during something. But as far as like real action, and then Asaph said this, not going to happen. You don't see that outside of the Psalms. And then Asaph showed up and did that. That's, that, that doesn't happen. He's referred to constantly, um, but we, we hear about him in First Chronicles 6. King David assigns many Levites to be worship leaders. Asaph is one of them. Several times we hear of his kids. We hear of, of, of places he is, events that he is participating in, evidenced by the fact that he's there. Uh, he's referred to as a seer or a prophet. But again, all references to Asaph. No, no quotes, not a lot of action. 
He was a gifted musician. He uses his music to praise God and communicate the word of God to people, similar to what Jesus and our team do as they lead us in God-focused, Christ-exalting worship, using their musical gifts, using their talents, using their abilities that God has given them to lead us into the presence of God on a Sunday morning when we gather together. And one thing Asaph did was pen 13 of the 150 Psalms. He's credited with having written 13 of the Psalms that we have in our Bibles. Speaking of 13, 13 of the Psalms, not all of them Asaph, but 13 of the Psalms are what we are called maskils. If you're keeping score, it's Psalm 32, 42, 44, 45, 52, 53, 54, 55, 74, 78, 88, 89, 142, and a partridge in a pear tree. A maskil is an instructive psalm. That's the type of psalm that it is. It's designed to be understood and to be applied or acted upon. Many, many psalms are songs of varying types, or perhaps you'll remember from our summer series, we spent time specifically looking at the Psalms of Lament. And there's a purpose for that, right? Sad songs say so much. We look at the Psalms and we realize that we can learn from them. And we can learn from any and every word of God. We can apply truth from any Psalm, just as we did over really sad Psalms throughout the summer. But maskils are specifically written to be instructive, to teach, and to be applied. And that's the type of Psalm that we're, we have here today. It's a psalm that starts out saying, hey, pay attention, right? Look at verse one. You see that? Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. In other words, pay attention. Listen up. All eyes up here. That's what Asaph is saying. This is important. I'm writing this psalm. It's not just another song. I want to teach you through this psalm. I want, I want you not just to sing this. I want you to learn from this. Verse 1, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. It's the way we're supposed to approach the word of God. We should read God's word to hear from him. And we want to hear from him, not because it's just a, a good idea, because we feel better if we do that, because we can check a box and know that we had our quiet time or devotional or whatever you want to call it, but because we need to hear from God. We remember that Christ himself, when he was being tempted in the, in the desert, his first response, Matthew 4, 4, Luke 4, 4, to the devil is man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We lean in, we incline our ears to the Lord because we need to hear from God. So just as a side note, does that describe you? Your attitude in approaching the word of God, is it just something that we do or do we kind of lean in because we really, we really want to hear? Wait a minute, I really want to hear what this person is saying. I'm clicking up on the remote so I can really hear better. I want to hear what is being said to me because I need to hear. Or perhaps you've been walking with the Lord for quite some time. You're familiar with the Bible. Maybe you've read it cover to cover umpteen times. Do you lean in? Do you seek to incline your ear? Do you, do you look to God's word? Do you come to it expectantly, hopefully, wanting to hear from the word of God because you know that you need it? Not benefit from it, not it would be kind of cool, not it makes me feel warm and fuzzy, oh heck, it's Christmas, but you lean in because you know that you can't live without it. Man cannot live by bread alone 
but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I remember in my, I think it was early 20s, being very sporadic in my Bible reading at the time, and a friend of mine calling me out. I remember him saying, he just said, come on, man, you're starving. I can see it. He said, you're starving. I can see it. I, to this day, don't know exactly what he saw when he said that. He didn't have to elaborate. He just knew that I was floundering in my walk with the Lord when it came to how much I read my Bible or really spent time with the Lord. And he just said, he said, come on, man, you're starving. I can see it. And he was right. There was something in me, something about me, something about the way that I was, I don't know, talking, acting, responding to sin. Maybe I was short fused a lot. I, I, I don't know. There's something about it that he knew that I wasn't spending time in the word. He knew that it was something that I was doing really quickly. I was not giving ear to the Lord, inclining my ears because I just had set it aside. I wasn't hearing from God because I wasn't hearing his word. And I can say personally, it's really cool now that if I'm not in God's word devotionally, not professionally, meaning for my profession, preparing a sermon, I'm not talking about that. If I'm not in God's word devotionally, for whatever reason, I miss it. I miss it. I can skip a meal. The vast majority of us can skip a meal. Not long-term, right? There should be a certain amount that we're eating on a regular basis, but oftentimes I lose track of time and I work straight through lunch. Or maybe I'm running a little late in the morning. I didn't have breakfast. We'll be fine. You'll survive. You're not going to die as a result of that. But for the most part, we should be eating regularly. And it's a good sign when you have been feeding on the word of God regularly, so much so that when you don't have it, you're not dying, but you do feel it. You do feel it. You do notice a difference in your life. Maybe you become a little spiritually hangry, right? Maybe there, there's, some, there, there, there's, a, there's something that happens to you that you realize something's different. I haven't eaten as much. I've not fed on God's word. Is that you? When you don't feed on God's word, are you hungry? And if the answer is no, you just got to read it. How dare you? If the answer is no, if that doesn't describe you, say, I can't really relate to that, start reading it regularly, and then you'll see. You'll see God impact your life as you read a word that is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. You'll see God's word do things in your life, how God calls it to your mind as you live out this life that can sometimes be very hard. You'll see God's word uh, seemingly leap out from the pages at times as you read something, you think that really describes what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, that really relates to what I'm going through. Not every time, not all the time. I wonder what I should get my mom for Christmas. Oh, there it is. That's not going to happen. But there are many, many, many times that as we read God's word, it's oftentimes uncanny as to how he impacts our lives just through what we're going to read in the word today. And I find that most people who say that's never happened to me if you ask the follow-up question of, do you read your Bible? The answer is kind of, well, I don't know. Look, a deer. Like, they don't typically read their Bible. If you read it enough, you'll find that God calls it to your mind. That God uses it. It really is living. It really is active. Look at verse 2. It says, I will open my mouth in a, a parable. <clears throat> in other words, what I'm going to say isn't just a nice story to be imagined. But it's intended for us to connect the dots. That's what Asaph is saying. Give ear, incline your ear, listen up. I'm going to speak a parable. 
This is not just a story. This is not just once upon a time. I'm telling you this story so that you can connect the dots from what's happening in this story to your everyday life. Connecting the dots between what he tells us happened with the people of Israel and the reader. And that's what my intention is to do today. We're going, for the rest of our time, Lord willing, we're going to incline our ears to lean into the word of God and seek to connect the dots between what was said and done then and what is said and done now. So that's what I hope to do as we walk through this portion of Psalm 78. The first thing I want you to notice is I want you to look at verses 1 through 3, and I want you to notice the emphasis that Asaph puts on words. Okay? Look at verse 1. Give ear, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. The importance of words and the importance of words being spoken. Look at verse 2. I will open my mouth. I will utter. Verse 3. Things we have heard that our fathers have told us. Verse 4. We see tell. Verse 5. We see teach. And I say all this to bring, that, to bring up our first point. Living out loud should lead to speaking out loud. Living out loud should lead to speaking out loud. Now, show of hands, how many of you were here for the Living Out Loud series that we did? I remember how long ago it was. It wasn't terribly long ago. Living Out Loud, okay? We did a series that focused on how our actions, our everyday lives can be used uh, to, 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 to honor the Lord to hopefully reach people, that our everyday life would be used in such a way that people would be impacted by how different we are. We can be odd for God. We can not conform to the ways of this world. We can stand out. We can be light in dark places, etc., etc., etc. And all that is good, but we can't lose the fact that it will never be a substitute for speaking. It needs to go along with speaking, We shouldn't just be the sin police. Oftentimes people don't live out loud. They just speak out loud and their lives don't reflect the glory of God and the Christ that we love. And all they want to do is call out sin, call out sin, call out sin. And they're just a glorified whistleblower with a Bible. That's not necessarily what we're supposed to be doing. We should be living our lives in a way that reflects our Savior. However, it's never going to totally eliminate the need to speak. You need to realize that if you think living out loud is good. If I live out loud, if I'm odd for God, if I do things that are different from the world, I keep my mouth shut, which is really easier for me because I'm not really one who wants to speak and I don't want to share my faith. So now all I have to do is be different, right? I cuss less. I give more. I do these other things. I just be different. And then I can preach the gospel without even preaching. That's not true. The Lord is never downplaying the need to speak, the need to to share. So of course, we've said this many times, both Brad and myself, the alleged uh, 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 quote from Francis of Assisi, which can never be attributed to him, never really be traced back to him. Do you know what I'm about to say? Preach the gospel. If necessary, use words, right? Preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. It's kind of funny that we associated with Francis of Assisi because he was, if you dig down into it, a hellfire and brimstone preacher. Okay. He used a ton of words really passionately, really loudly, really boldly. It's pretty funny out of all the people for us to associate. We didn't associate this with the deaf mute. We associated with this with somebody who is really passionate about words. Preach the gospel, use words if necessary, serves to kind of perpetuate this postmodern thought that words are meaningless. It, 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 it disparages the unbelievably high value that Jesus, Paul, 
the prophets of the Old Testament, the martyrs of the New Testament, put on preaching and teaching and sharing truth with others who need to hear it. Now, I know we say things like live out the gospel, be the gospel. I've even heard gospel each other. Gospel is a verb all of a sudden. Or be Jesus to those in your life. The intent is good. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. The reminder to not be all talk and no walk is important. We're certainly supposed to be salt and light, and we do well to choose to act in a way that is consistent with the Christ we know and love. However, at the end of the day, the gospel isn't something you can really live out Does that, or, or practice or demonstrate, or become, and my goodness, you really can't be Jesus to someone else. Now, I, again, I know the intent is good, but at the end of the day, when we keep using gospel in this way, we forget the fact that the gospel is good what? Good? Again, good? Good news. News. It's, it's, it's good news. It's a message. And just like the nightly news can't be communicated by actions, neither can the good news. Good news can be supported with our actions. We should do that. But at the end of the day, at some point in time, a word has to be spoken. The gospel is a message. It's not something we can really just live out or practice or demonstrate or become. Living out loud should lead to, either in short time or long time, speaking out loud. Consider this for a minute. If godly living, right, what we're calling living out loud, doesn't lead to speaking out loud, to whom does our living out loud point to? Let me ask that a question again. If godly living doesn't eventually lead to somehow, in some way, shape, or form, speaking out loud, who does godly living ultimately point to? It points to me. If I'm making different choices, but there's no reason why that would be done in response to God, I just look like a do-gooder, right? An upright model citizen. At some point, I should be hoping and praying to drop some sort of a word in so that people know I'm really not just a great guy. I'm not doing this because I'm some awesome sauce. I'm doing this because I love Jesus, I'm doing this because Jesus has changed my life, has impacted my life. This is rather serious. If we choose to make good and right choices in life, we pay our taxes, we go the extra mile at work, we're kind to people who aren't kind to us, we are honest, we're upright, we're model citizens, we're kind, we're compassionate, we're generous with time and money, go on and on and on, etc., etc. If we choose to be and do these things, but never try to speak of Christ, our good choices will only ever point to ourselves. Let me use a really just silly example that hopefully we can all relate to. Let's say you're buying something and you're at the store and the person gives you an incorrect amount of change. Not they shortchange you. You'll definitely live out loud when they shortchange you. But what if they give you more than you're supposed to get? Okay. And they give you a dollar more than they're supposed to or whatever. You notice and you give the right amount of change back. Is this godly? Absolutely. 
Does this honor the Lord? Yes, it's kind. You're helping the cashier not come up short at the end of the day. I'm sure he or she appreciates that. It's honest. You've noticed that you were overpaid, so to act like you didn't notice would be dishonest. This is a good and godly thing. But living out loud should lead to speaking out loud. And when the cashier looks back at you and thanks you for doing that, or says, wow, I can't, usually if that's happened to me, and it has happened to me, where I will get the incorrect amount of change back, it's more every time my deep and dark heart is tempted to just keep it. Not going to lie. Every time, I don't, but I go, I could just, no, I can't, I'm a Christian. Literally, that happens every time. Like, oh, wow, an extra, don't do that. Like, like, that's how, that's what happens in my mind. It's never just, oh, this isn't mine. It's, yes, mo money, mo money. It's just, I just see it, and I'm like, cool, a dollar. No, it's not your dollar. So that happens every time because I have a deep, dark heart. So I get the wrong amount of change back, and I go, oh, you gave me a dollar more than you should have, or actually, I think this is yours, or something like that. The person usually says, thank you, and then follows up, I don't know if you've ever been in this situation, by saying how, how no one typically does that, exactly, how that's so rare. Wow, it's good to know there's still honest people in the world, something like that, which means my good actions have pointed squarely and roundly to me. So then at that time, if I just go, oh, you're welcome, and I walk out, it's a squandered opportunity. Did I live out loud? Yes. Did I speak out loud? Heck no. And therefore that person leaves thinking, oh, look at that guy. He's nice and he's honest. But that person doesn't leave thinking, look at that guy who gave me a dollar back. I think I'm a sinner in need of a savior. (laughs) That doesn't happen. But I'm living out loud. Look at that person who they did that. I bet they love Jesus. No. They just think, look at that person. Looks like the good old days are not always just back in, back then. There's some, there's some good, honest people in the world. And to use that as an opportunity to say something, something. Now, there's a line behind you. Please be conscious of that. I, I get it. You're not going to lay out the gospel and just talk about the whole Romans road at the time. But to say, you know what? I'm a Christian. God has really impacted my life through Jesus I live my life to please him, keeping that dollar, tempting as it would be, it just, it wouldn't please the Lord. Something to take that moment off of me and onto God so that that person leaves thinking, at least in some way, shape, or form, this person's life has been impacted by Jesus. This person made this choice. It wasn't because he's super honest. He actually had to slay his flesh in the moment. It wasn't because he's super honest. It's because Jesus has impacted his life. A failure to speak leads people to a better impression of me and no impression of God. Live out loud? Yes. Absolutely. And it should also lead to speaking out loud. Living out loud should lead to speaking out loud. Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verses 13 and following. We must be salt and light. Godly living places the Lord, uh, pleases the Lord and is certainly helpful in evangelizing. It's my godly living in that situation with the cashier that gave me the opportunity to then talk to her, right? Because if, I was like, if they gave me the extra dollar, I was like, see ya, and I just left. It not only wouldn't honor the Lord, but I would also squander the opportunity because she wouldn't say something back to me. So godly living can serve to undergird, to support, to even promote opportunities, make opportunities, for people to hear why we live the way we live. But it will never take the place of eventually at some place, at some way, shape, or form, some word needing to be shared in some way. Romans 10, verse 17. Faith comes from what? Hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. 
No one has ever been so impacted by your awesome life choices that they look at you and say, wow, look at how intentional they are with their parenting. Wow, look at how hard she tries in school. Wow, look at how awesome this person acts at work. I think I need Jesus. If you don't take the little awesome and use it as an opportunity to show forth the big awesome of God, we'll miss that opportunity. Does that make sense? Living out loud should lead to, in some way, shape, or form, speaking out loud. So think about it. What about, what about you? In what areas of your life would you say, I think I'm setting a good example, but I think it's a quiet one. I'm setting a good example. I'm, I'm doing the right things. I'm wanting to please the Lord. I certainly stand out as different. But I really have to be a little more intentional about looking for an opportunity to then to say something, something great about God, not great about me. It's funny. We'll look at this a little later. Oftentimes, the people who say something want to say something about the sinful actions of the other person. Not a bad thing. What we're going to see in the psalm here, though, is the importance of talking about the goodness of God, the great things that he has done. So, for example, we'll go back to that cashier. Cashier gives me an extra dollar. I say, oh, that's actually yours. You gave me, you gave me one more than you should have. She says, wow, that's great. There's not that many people like that in this world. So I could then say, well, yeah, I know. They're going to hell. I'll see you. <laughs> yeah, that's because they're, you know, hellbound and full of sin. That's true. It's, just, it's, it's true. Many times people sin, and oftentimes people sin because they're sinners, and they're sinners because they have within them a sinful name. All of that is true. I just didn't make much of God in that moment. I made sure that they realized that people who sin are sinners. But as opposed to talking about the goodness of God, God's been so good to me. I want to please him with my life. This doesn't belong to me. It's yours. Using it as an opportunity to show forth the goodness of God. Whatever opportunity that is. Somebody talking about the fact that you didn't get mad at work when everyone else got mad. I don't know what it is. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know your deal. But there's some situation, some opportunity where somebody notices a difference. And instead of, why don't, gosh, you're so calm. We're all hacked. And you say, well, there's just no point. Well, it's probably not going to do anything anyway. Quite frankly, this is not where my world is. I answer to a higher authority. I'm upset, but I'm not letting it get the best of me because my, my world isn't here. This is not, I'm not living for this. I, I choose to live. I get my joy in Christ. I get my joy from the Lord. Nothing's, no budget cut, no salary cut, no benefits cut. Nothing, nothing affects that using it as an opportunity to talk about the Lord. Living out loud should lead to speaking out loud. Maybe there's an area of your life where you're setting a godly example, but, but maybe, it's, maybe it's a silent one. Where would God have you speak out loud as you live out loud for him? Here's something else you'll notice. Take a look at Psalm 78 again in verse 4. And it's not just in Psalm 78, it's throughout the scriptures. But verse 4 says what? We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. When I read something like this, 
I can't believe it has to be written. Would people really hide God from people? Would people really hide God from people? In this case, children. Would, I mean, ours is a dark, dark world. But are there really people who have been saved by God, love Jesus Christ, have had their lives radically impacted by the gospel, and then hide those truths from people? In this case, from children? Like, is that a thing? Does this really need to be written? The reason it's a hard, I was like, why is this a hard pill to swallow? And as I thought about it, it's because of this. Hiding is active. You never passively hide something. You passively lose something. But you actively hide something. You know, probably unlike, not unlike you, probably very similar to many of you. Every Easter, um, in light of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we hide colored Easter eggs. There's a clear connection. And, and I don't passively hide those. I don't lose them. I actively hide them. Actively. I'm trying my best to hide them. I'm out doing last year. Yeah, there's some in the grass for the littler kids. That's fine. We'll let them do it. But I want to stump Justin. Okay? I want to hide these things. It's an act. It takes a lot of thought. Sarah, Peter, they're never going to find them if you do that. I'm like, say it again, baby. Say it again. It's like, I don't think that's having the effect on me you're hoping it has. Like, so I'm winning. I'm winning? Tell me I'm winning. It's what you're saying is I'm winning. Actively hide these things. Actively hide them, like in the, 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 the crease tray of the grill with the lid closed and the rain cover on top. Find that thing. Right? Find those jelly beans, kid. And they do. We actively hide. If you're hiding something, so when, when the word of God says we will not hide them, That's not, we will not forget. There's actually responsibility there. Because if you're calling it hiding, someone had to think about hiding it. There's something I'm supposed to own there. We will not hide them from the children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord. And hiding Easter eggs is one thing, and that's fun, and that's cute, and we enjoy it, and I'll get them this year. Being accused of hiding the Christ of Easter. Hiding God. Hiding what he's done. uh, That's not cute. It's kind of sinister. But here's the thing. To not speak of the Lord is to hide him from others. You say, give me a, really? Really? Give me a break. I didn't, I didn't write it. I'm getting this from the text. We will not hide them from their children, but we'll do something different. What's the difference? We will not hide them, but we will what? But, it, it's in the text. But tell. We will not hide, but we will tell. So there's that, uh, here's what we're not going to do. And there's a but. Here's what we're going to do. We will not hide, we will tell. The opposite of hiding is to tell. Asaph says what not to do. Hide truth about God. And then he says we're we're going to do the opposite. So in other words, to logic proofs, to not hide God is to tell people about God. To hide God is to not tell people about God. When we're not speaking, we are, in a sense, hiding. Throughout God's word, not speaking is referred to as hiding. Keep your finger in Psalm 78 and turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3. 
Look at 1 Samuel 3, verse 4. So, a little bit of background. Eli's eyesight is dim. He's laying down. Verse 4 comes up. Samuel says, I'm sorry, verse 4, it's the Lord called Samuel. Samuel said, here I am. Ran to Eli. Said, here I am, you called me. But he said, I didn't call. Lie down again. So he went and laid down. How many of us as parents have been through this? Go to sleep. Go to sleep. Verse 6, and the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Verse 8, the Lord called Samuel again the third time. He arose and went to Eli. Apparently, Eli had a voice like Morgan Freeman. And said, here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went, lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood, this would be different, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. Then he goes on to prophesy, to say what he's going to do, and how Samuel's involved in that, and what he plans on doing. Now I want you to skip down until verse 15. Samuel lay until morning. So in other words, Samuel didn't sleep. Okay, this is... Samuel laid there until morning, verse 15. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli, verse 16. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. He said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not what? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me. Of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing for him. Just another example of where not telling is also referred to, same Hebrew word as what? Hiding. Don't intentionally not tell me this. Do not hide it from me. Hiding is never passive. So we ought not make the mistake of thinking that not speaking of the Lord is simply passive forgetfulness on our part to to not speak is to actually actively hide that's how god views our silence we're hiding when we're not looking for an opportunity when we're or or actively passing up opportunities saying i'm just going to set a good example i'm not going to say a thing the bible calls that hiding and this further emphasizes the first point and that is the fact that our living out loud needs to lead to speaking out loud Specifically, look at verse 4. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation what? The glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Keep reading. Look at verse 5. He established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded to our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them and the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children. Why, Asaph? Verse 7. So that they should set their hope in God. Do Do you see that? Verse 7, that's the cross, so that they should set their hope in God, not forget the works of God, keep his commandments. Our living out loud should lead to our speaking out loud so that people would set their hope in God. Not so they'd know this is why they're so stupid and why we're so awesome. This is why the world's going to hell in a handbasket and I got to tell them. 
Serves them right, thinking like, wait, it's not about that. It's verse 7, so that they should set their hope in God. Not forget the works of God, ultimately live a life that is pleasing to God. That's the reason. Why are we wanting to, so we give ear to the word of the Lord. Why should living out loud lead to speaking out loud? Because we want, we don't want to hide these things. People need to set their hope in God. People put their hope in themselves. People put, them hope in, uh, put their hope in other things that will never, ever deliver. We have the message of hope. It's good news. And verse 7 rounds it out by saying, this is why we're doing this. So that they should set their hope in God. Not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Now, let's switch gears just a little bit. As we've been talking about this, hopefully you've pictured people in your life who need to hear about the Lord. Raise your hand, just let me know. As we were talking about this, somebody came to mind. Good. Okay, so the Lord lays someone on your heart, someone you work with, someone you're going to see for the holidays. I, I, I don't know. A coworker, a friend, a family member you're going to see for Thanksgiving or Christmas. Maybe you need to pray that the Lord would provide an opportunity for you to speak of the things of God. I hope you will do that. I hope we'll all do that. Our living out loud should lead to our speaking out loud. And what we should be speaking are the glories of God, the great things he has done, the hope that is in Christ and only in Christ. But please look at the text once again. Look at verse 4. Asaph is specifically concerned that these things not be hid from whom? Children. Verse 4, we will not hide them from their children, uh, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord. Uh, look at verse 5. He established a testimony in Jacob, appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. Uh, verse 6, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise them to tell them to their children. Why? Verse 7, so that they would set their hope in God. And, and the view here that Asaph has, like, do the math. It's, it's really helpful. Tell to their children, um, look at verse 6, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn. So, in Asaph's mind here is not just my kids. It's my kids, unborn kids. Does, the, the, does that make sense? He's got a way bigger picture than I oftentimes do. The children yet unborn. Please look at verse 6 and not at me. Verse 6. The next generation. So end of verse 5 says, Command the children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn. So now we're talking about the unborn children. Keep reading. And arise and tell them to their children. So we're, if I'm doing the math right, we're talking about my children's unborn's children, children. So Asaph doesn't want to hide these truths from kids, not just because they're kids and they're cute and they need to know and we want them to put their hope in God. That's true, but he's thinking way beyond that. That it's not just about what you see, but it's about the kids and the generations that you can't see, will probably never see. Not many people are great-grandparents. 
So it's doing this with the mindset of, oh, it's my children's unborn children's children is why I plant seeds of the gospel in my kids. Now, in my opinion, if there's a group of people we run the risk of hiding God from the most, it just, it just might be our children. Here's why, just as I was thinking about it this week. My kids go where I go. If we're going to church, they're going to church. If we're going to a small group, they're going to a small group. If we're going to a church function, they're going to a church function. If we went to a mosque, they would go to a mosque. We pile in the minivan and we all go to the same place because I'm driving, right? So my kids go where I go. And I think sometimes we might be more cognizant of the need to tell our unsaved friends, family, relatives, and coworkers than we are our own children because we just assume that they'll catch it. Does that, does that make sense? I mean, they're around us all the time. They go to church all the time. So we just think, yeah, they obviously get it. But it's, it's the lost coworker. It's Tom who's going to come to Christmas dinner again, and he's still living his life in a horrible, horrible way. It's Susie who has no concept of even that there is a God, much less pleasing him and her need to be made right with him. My kids, yeah, they get it. They live with me. Now, I'm particularly aware of this and concerned about this because I run the risk of my kids just thinking we go to church because dad works there. Uh, like, I, if I'm not clearly living and speaking about God to them, I, I think I run the risk of them thinking we go to church because daddy works at church, implying that if daddy was in IT, we wouldn't go to church. But since daddy works at church, we go to church. I guess that's why. If I'm not making a clear distinction, no, 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 no. We don't go here because I work here. We would go to church no matter what dad lived for a living because Jesus has changed mom and dad's life. Jesus has saved us. He's impacted our hearts. Children are some people who need to see us live out loud, but also desperately need to hear us speak out loud so that they can connect the why to the what. Why we do what we do. Otherwise, just like the cashier, it's just kind of moral living. I don't know. I always saw my dad get up and read his Bible. I guess it's just the, kind of the right thing to do. I don't know. I always I just, I know as long as I was a child in my parents' home, we always went to church. I don't know. I guess just once a week, we had people, a bunch of people come over and we would, they would all sit in a circle. I don't know. Every once in a while, the horn just started beeping. I, I, I just, just, you just talk about things as if they happen and just assume that they understand why. And that's not just on my heart and mind as a dad and as a pastor, but it seems to have been what was on Asaph's mind and heart as he penned what is now Psalm 78. Children especially need to see lives impacted by the goodness of God and hear about what he's done so we don't just raise moral, outstanding, upright citizens who go to church for weddings, funeral, Christmas, and Easter if they go at all. Look at verse 7 again. So that they should set their hope in God. Look at verse 9. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turn back on the day of battle. So we don't have time to get, into, to get into all the history behind this, but suffice to say, this is a group of people who turn back on the day of battle. I want you to see why they did that. Verse 10. They did not keep God's covenant. They refused a covenant. They refused to walk according to his law. Verse 11. 
they forgot how to use their bow. That's not what it says, right? Uh, They were helpless. They couldn't fight. That's not what it says. What does it say in verse 11? They what? Forgot his works. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. I don't want my kids to do that. I don't want your kids to do that. I don't want them to forget. We're talking about a major repercussion of forgetting it. This is not, oh, I forgot where my keys are. Forgetting the goodness of God is not going to drive us to live for him. Forgetting how good God is just makes him one of several options. Just one of, oh yeah, I guess we could do the God thing. I guess we could maybe do what God wants us to do. But forgetting the goodness of God, forgetting his works, the wonders that he had shown them, leads people to turning back when they're faced with adversity, when they're faced with a battle, when they're faced with an opportunity where they can choose God or not God, choose what seems right to them or what is right to the Lord. And I want our kids to know and love the Savior. And I can't force that. I can't mandate that. I can't incentivize that. I can't manipulate that. I can't program that. But I can do my best to not hide that. And so can you. You say, me? And I say, you. You think, oh, that's sweet. He took time to speak to parents. He himself is a parent. The pastor took some time to talk to the parents today. It's the parents' primary responsibility to speak these truths. That is true. But I have a t-shirt at home. It's one of the most comfiest t-shirts I own. And it says in these 70s retro letters, we are, what does it say? Family. We are family. Lo and behold, it's comfy. It's comfy. We're family. It's primarily my responsibility. Could you help a brother out? Like, it's primarily my responsibility to raise my kids. The axe is over my head. If you're a parent, the axe is over your head, particularly if you're a dad. But we are family, and family helps each other out. And while it's primarily my responsibility to both model gospel living and speak gospel truths, living out loud leads to speaking out loud, there are weeks when I roll into here having to some degree failed in one or both of those categories. Now, I'm sure if I took a straw poll, there are times when you come to church hoping and praying the week you're beginning is way better than the week that preceded it. Because as a parent, it was one that was particularly challenging. Or you may or may not have embraced opportunities afforded you to model and teach Christ as often as you could. We are family, and I need help. I think you do too. And that is why we have our children's ministry. Our children's ministry doesn't exist to keep the kids safe, although we hope to keep them safe. Our children's ministry doesn't exist just so that 
you don't have to be bothered by your kids because last I checked, children are a blessing even when they're a bother. So our children's ministry doesn't exist just so you can have some, just so you can get a break. There's 168 hours in a week. I just, you know, I can deal with them 166 and a half other hours. That is a byproduct because they happen to be in a different room, in a different building actually. But that's not why it exists. Our children's ministry exists to partner with parents in teaching their children the gospel, to tell them of the great, great things God has done for his glory and our good. And with the growing number of children we have in our church, we've decided to take some really, really great steps to ensure that our children's ministry, which is already good, is great. We don't want our children's ministry just to skate on by by the skin of our teeth. We just barely throw it together really fast. We finally have a worker. We're not really there, but sometimes it can be a bit hectic. And as children keep growing, we can theoretically have children's ministry grow without the rest of the church growing. You know where babies come, come from. So, so the church doesn't, some of you are confused. I don't have time, guys. Listen, just tell me, I'm telling you, even if theoretically, if this church received no more visitors, our children's ministry still grows, Right? because of marriage, because of love, because of sex, because of procreation, because that's what God does within families. So this is a demographic within our church that continues to grow. And you can help us ensure the goodness of God is not hidden from the largest demographic in our growing church, which is children. And I want to point out to you some things about our children's ministry from Psalm 78. And they're in your outline. I think I highlighted this before. Children's ministry is never only about the children you see or the parents you see, but the children in generations to come that you'll never see. Ever, ever, ever. Verses four through six. Tell to the coming generation. Teach their children, the next generation, the children yet unborn, teaching them to their children so that they should set their hope in God. A children's ministry gives our kids reason to hope in God as they learn to remember his consistent goodness, faithfulness, And mercy, verse 7, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. Seeing how God has acted in generations from times past, seeing how faithful God has been literally from cover to cover throughout the word of God, talking about how faithful God has been to you, what God has done to you, this gives people hope, particularly and especially children so that they would know that they would see and i also need to also highlight this that this is a fact and it's in your outline as well for some children you must know that our children's ministry is the only time they hear about the lord each week like i know that for a fact i'm not going to point i'm telling you that's the truth though for some children given their family background and their dynamic and why they're here and who's bringing them and all this other stuff for a fact for a fact the one time they're hearing about the Lord is in that building. That's a fact. It's an opportunity to not only partner with parents, sometimes it's an opportunity to do something because parents have abdicated or because parents are lost. Children's ministry can be used by God to break generational cycles of sin and rebellion. So verse, I got that from verse 8. There is a reason that, they should, that they're telling these things, that they should not be like their father's, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Did you ever look at 
a family situation and just think, my goodness, is, it just seems to go from, you fill in the blank, whether it, some, ki- some type of sin, from generation to generation to generation to generation to generation to generation. You're like, where does the buck stop? Where will it stop? This happened to this person, who then happened to this person, this happened to this person. Do you know what changes that? The gospel. That's the only thing that changes that. There's no self-help. There's no, it's not gonna, that, that's not going to help it. That's going to make a long-lasting life change. The gospel impacts people's lives. And then they live for Christ and start to make better decisions. Not perfect decisions, but better decisions. And then all of a sudden they want to please God more than they want to please themselves. That's what impacts lives and changes people and says the buck stops here. It doesn't have to keep being the way it's been. God changes lives. And the gospel is the only thing that has the power to do that, to change it from generation to generation to generation. And finally, like I said, children's ministry equips our kids not to turn back when facing trouble and to endure as they remember the goodness of the Lord. They don't have to be like the Ephraimites. The ghost of Ephraim doesn't have to reign in their lives. They don't have to turn back on the day of battle because they know not just how to fight, but they know that God is good. They didn't turn back. I want to say that again. They didn't turn back, verse 9. They didn't turn back because they forgot how to fight. They turned back because they forgot why to fight. They forgot the good. It wasn't about how or what. It was why. Why bother? Why do this? They forgot the goodness of God. They forgot his works. They forgot the wonders that he had shown them. We don't sit across that parking lot and talk to our kids about truths of Scripture because they're nice stories. It's not about them being stories. These are accounts of God's faithfulness and how he's acted for his people for generations and generations. We don't want to hide them. And we don't want to hide them by not telling them. So God's blessed us with a tremendous children's ministry where God's doing great, great, great things And what we've recently wanted to do as we close now is make a change to it to make it really, really better. And that was this. We're getting rid of, as much as possible, the rotation of teachers and trying our best and prayerfully approaching the Lord saying, would you give each class the most consistent teaching situation possible? Could they have the same teacher every week or every other week that doesn't mean they'll never have a sub doesn't mean that some teacher says i have a fever i can't teach more we're like way to hide them from the kids like we're not we're not that right but we think it's best to have the most consistent situation possible just like you probably appreciate having your small group led by the same people each and every time that you go just like for those of you who are with us in the days of newport when I was preaching at the Florence campus for upwards of 20 Sundays a year, that just felt like, again, it's not bad, but Sandy said it recently in a meeting, it just feels like dad travels a lot for work. And consistency is better. We want you to pray that we would be able to do that. That might come from the existing teachers who are able to do that, That might come from people in this room who never even thought of saying, I think God would have me teach second graders. I think God would have me teach fifth graders. I think I could hold a baby in nursery. I I, I don't know. 
I really believe that the Lord will do this, that he'll do this over the next several weeks as we strive our very, very best to kick off the new year with a, t- with a children's ministry that is already doing really well but can now do all the better because people will own it and there'll be consistency. You don't have to wonder where the last teacher left off. Did they really use that illustration that I can now reference? You know whether they happened or not because you're the one who used it the week before. So it's our goal and our prayer to have our children's ministry staffed with the same teachers each and every week or at most every other week so that there would be consistency for our children because we think that's the best way for them to be taught. I've noticed it with my kids that my kids, they've been in classes where they've been consistently taught by teachers and they've been in classes that were a rotation. And the kids who have been in class with the rotation are my kids, they're worse. No, I'm kidding. But the kids who have been taught in the rotation, they learn. The ones who are taught consistently learn better and learn more and pay better attention. And, just have, and that could be a coincidence, but it's typically the best way to do things. I mean, I see several of you nodding. It's the best way to lead a church, an organization, a class, a Sunday school class. And we don't want to just start throwing things, just have something for the kids. Fine, put a warm body in there. It doesn't matter as long as they're safe. We want to do more than that. We don't want to hide them from our kids. We want the kids to have the best opportunity to hear gospel truths so that we can partner with children in the most effective way possible. And I'm looking out to you, you church family, and ask you, will you pray for our children's ministry? And will you consider serving? Will you consider being that consistent gospel witness? Will you consider giving us two services? Some of you give us one service, and that's fine. Will you consider giving us two services? Let me poke a little, friendly, love you. Say I love you too. Thank you. Okay, so churches aren't always built on the backs of people who only give them one service. Grace Fellowship Church is not built on the backs of people. Say, look, I got one and done. I I got one in me. Now, you might be in a season of life for some reason where that is the case. I think for many of us, it's probably preference. That may not be you. Maybe for you it's mandatory, it's necessity. But for many of us, it's preference. Now that we have two services, you have the opportunity that you don't have to miss church. We used to have one service. To serve in this way, you would have to miss church. That's no longer the case. And you say, but then I'd have to be here for two services. Perish the thought. I understand. But churches are built. This is a growing baby church. It's not built primarily on the backs of people who can only give us one service on a Sunday morning. We really could use your help. So I hope that you will pray for our kids and you will pray for our children's ministry. It is not for everybody to serve in this way. I think it's for more people than than you realize. And I think the opportunity to impact children's lives and the opportunity to do that in a way that is best. I think we're doing a way that's really good, but to do that in a way that is best is our best next step for Grace Fellowship Church at our Fort Thomas campus. And Taylor's going to hook you up with what you need to do to succeed. She's going to give you the curriculum. She's going to help you do that. We're not just going to say, good, go, don't hide them. We got to go and just walk away. We have a great curriculum. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to teach this. It's really, really, really helpful. It's really, really good. And we have teachers who are doing it each and every 
every week right now, and they love it. And it's not always easy, but they love it, and our children love it, and they check in with them, and someone knows that someone else is going through this tough situation, and they can then follow up, and they pray for this person, and it's this person's birthday, and they're watching these things happen, and they get to know them because they have this consistency. Is God calling you to join our children's ministry team to care for and or maybe teach a class on Sunday mornings? We could use your help. If you're teaching on a rotation, is God calling you to ramp that up to an every week or an every other week that maybe you would give us two services? We could really use your help. And again, as we close, this is not because it's falling apart. We just want to put our best foot forward to this growing demographic in our church to make sure that we preach clear, consistent gospel messages and partner with our children, uh, with our parents as best as possible. As we close, look at verse 38 in Psalm 78. So between verses 11 and 38, there's a ton of judgment, really. Well, just a lot of judgment there, a lot of judgment. There's a list of things that they forgot that God did, and then there's a lot of judgment because of what they did. And yet I want you to look at verse 38. Look at verse 37, actually. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. And then look at God in verse 38. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh. Do you see that? He atoned. That's the message that I want our people to know, that I want our kids to know, that he's a compassionate God, slow to anger, who not only just isn't angry, but then atoned for the sins of his people. Sent his son to make payment, to make it right. Not overlook sin, but then to take care of our sin problem. It's my hope and prayer that as we recount the stories of God, the testimonies of what God has done from generation to generation, that people would see and know, even our littlest ones among us, that we have a God who pays for the sins of people because he's compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in mercy, and steadfast in his love. Father in heaven, I thank you for not hiding truth from me. Thank you for a faithful, faithful mom. Thank you for a really patient youth pastor. Wow. Thank you for pastors and people who poured into my life to help me understand truth. Lord, you were good in not hiding these things from me. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be just as good, if not better, and not hiding them from the children that you've brought to our church family. And show us how we might assist in reaching generation to generation to generation to generation with the truth of the gospel. Who here would you have pray regularly? Who here would you have serve who isn't serving or serve more who is serving uh, on a rotation now? Who is gifted among us to do this in a really, really helpful way? And who's not gifted but wants to learn and wants to be trained? Do your thing in the hearts of your people. I pray, Lord, that you would help people to know what next steps to take. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.